right, if you got your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and then Genesis chapter 42. Ephesians chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 42. So here's the deal. The passage that we are about to study in Genesis is at the end of what has been a really rough stretch in Joseph's life. In fact, if it was a Disney or a DreamWorks movie, I mean, it would end in chapter 41, right? I'm telling you, all the struggle, he has this vision, he gets sold into slavery, um, He uh, uh, then he gets uh, falsely accused of sexual assault, he's in prison, he continues to serve well and he's faithful, and then he's brought before Pharaoh, translates Pharaoh's dream, and then he's able to be the second most powerful person in the kingdom, leads them through a time, of great uh, blessing and now is leading them through a time of great famine. He's rewriting global economic policy. Um, he's, uh, uh, he's, setting up, uh, he's setting the nation up for success and developing peace by them controlling the market. Peace all across the known world at this point. I mean, I'm telling you, that's where you go. And then Joseph also has uh, two sons. He marries a great woman. Um, he, uh, uh, he gets a father-in-law who's named twice in chapter 42 or chapter 41 as being a person of great character. I mean, that's when you go and Joseph lived, and Joseph lived happily ever after. Roll the credits. There it is, right? Maybe a cut scene or two, you know, deleted scenes from the movie, whatever. I mean, you just run it at the end. Now, here's the thing. Joseph has been in a time of great difficulty. He's in a time of great blessing, and it seems like he's crossed the finish line. It seems like it's all done, but there is a whole lot to do with Joseph's story moving forward because his life is still incomplete. He's got career together. He's got his place in the universe and his relationship with Yahweh together. He's got humility in his life. But there's still a big old void when it comes to his family. If you're taking notes, our big or one of the questions we're going to go through today is this. Have you ever thought that something was finished and then you found out you still had a ways to go? Okay. Have you ever thought that something was finished and then you found out that you still had a ways to go? I have found in my life more often than not, there is always a ways to go, right? The finish line keeps getting extended. In fact, I would say that there is actually only one finish line you experience in this life. And that is when you finally stop breathing and you go to be with the Lord. All right. You're always going to be working towards something. The Lord is always going to be shaping you, fashioning your character. We call it the process of sanctification. Justification is where the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers our sin. That's when we pass through the stargate so that we get eternity with God in heaven. But sanctification is the process of the Lord shaping us and fashioning us so that we would look like his son. There was a time in my life right before we moved to D.C. I think we saw hitting D.C., getting here as a finish line in our lives, like once we crossed that finish line, something we worked on for more than a decade to try to get here and to plant Waterfront Church, I think we thought, here's the finish line and something's going to happen to where we hit the city and then we're going to cross the tape, cross the finish line, and then all of a sudden there would be a life before and then there would be a life after that was very different. <laughs> for us, the finish line got extended a little bit. All we had to do was pack up the moving truck the week before we moved here and sign the paperwork uh, to sell our house that we owned in Lubbock, Texas. But it was a crazy week. Six days before we would move, our sweet little son, Jack, Jack was two years old at the time. He also navigates autism, and so communication is very difficult for him. He's two years old anyway, but add the autism angle to it, and it was very difficult to have a conversation with him when he was hurting. And so Jack on that Monday morning, just starts huffing and puffing like that. Well, we're trying to figure out what's going on, 
And it turns out he was diagnosed with something called respiratory distress. It means he'd gotten some really weird virus that was indicative to, uh, indicative to the area, but it had attacked his immune system. And Jack had a sustained heartbeat of between, or heart rate of between 150 and 160 beats a minute. He was just absolutely wearing himself out. So we're there at ICU, and they tell us at ICU that day, we would like to consider medically inducing a coma for your son to calm him down and to slow him down because he's been at this sustained rate for more than 12 hours. Well, we're freaking out. We're just going, oh my goodness, we thought the finish line was just to sign the paperwork, to, uh, to, move, uh, to sign the paperwork, to pack up the house, and then we move to D.C. for the next race that we're supposed to run. I mean, that's what we thought was going on. And all of a sudden, Jack's fighting for survival. Well, sure enough, praise God, we had some friends in the church that helped us pack up the house, led by my dad. That was pretty cool. Pack up the house. And then my wife and I took shifts back and forth from the hospital to sign the paperwork so that the house could be sold so that somebody was with Jack all the time. So then we thought, okay, now the finish line is there and we're just going to cross and then we'll, we'll go. I had, to pre, or I had to do a commissioning service where they were going to send us off from our church in Texas to come here to D.C. But 36 hours before we moved, eight hours before the worship service, my dad starts having dramatic stomach pains on the upper left side of his stomach and we thought, we didn't know where the, pain, we didn't know where the, uh, uh, where the appendix was. We just thought stomach pains, it must be his appendix. He goes into the hospital with what ends up being neuroendocrine stage three pancreatic cancer. It turns out it was his pancreas that was in trouble. At the time, we didn't know, but dad goes into the hospital and I had to actually preach my own commissioning service when we left from Texas that particular day. So here's what's happened. All of a sudden, the finish line gets extended a little bit further because my wife and kids were going to fly to D.C. and I was going to make the drive 26 hours on the road from Lubbock, Texas to Washington, just me and my dad doing the cross-country road trip that we had wanted to do for our whole lives together. Dad can't go. The finish line gets extended again. I look at Autumn and I said, well, I guess I'm driving it by myself. My wife is awesome. She goes, no, you're not. She said, we're coming with you. I said, you and the kids? What are we going to do? She said, we used flyer miles to get the tickets. She goes, we can get the flyer miles back. She said, you're not driving that by yourself with your dad in the hospital and after what Jack just went through. She said, we're going to drive it together. But if you've driven 26 hours on the road, <laughs> it's rough. You drive 26 hours with screaming children, and our kids were four, two, and two months. Harper was two months old. If you ever look at our daughter Harper, Harper is a picture of the church by age, all right? Our church at that point was, again, a screaming baby, all right? And so here's what happened. All of a sudden, the line gets moved further. She said, we're sticking with you. But well, we got this crazy journey. So because of Texas, some of you, some of you understand Texas geography. Texas is such a big state. I lived in West Texas, part of the panhandle. Texas is so big you drive, a lot of times we would drive to San Antonio, we would drive to Austin, we would drive to Dallas, but there's a whole other part of the state called East Texas, all right? East Texas is Longview, it's Marshall, and East Texas, the cutoff for East Texas uh, is a, or the, uh, the, uh, the kind of uh, uh, invisible boundary, if you're driving on I-20 or I-30, the invisible boundary is Greenville, all right? So Greenville was the spot for my wife and I that we knew everything west of Greenville, 
But anything east of Greenville was new territory, all right? Anything east of Greenville was stuff that we'd seen it on a map, we'd been there from time to time, but not like we knew West Texas. And I'll never forget, we pull up at a truck stop in Greenville, symbolic of like the pioneers of old right there on the horizon, looking towards the future, not knowing what was in the glorious future, right? And we're there in Greenville, and right there, Lulu, our oldest, throws up in the back of the car. Now, here's the deal. This was heavy for us on multiple levels. First was, car would throw up, long trip, not fun, all right? The second was, remember, Jack had just been in ICU because of some virus. So my wife and I are scared to death going, maybe Lulu has it too. And even someone who's had the faith to try to raise money and raise support and try to rally troops so that we could move out here and start a church. I'm sitting there going, dad's in the hospital. Jack was in ICU. We had to fight all this stuff. People we don't know packed up our stuff, right? And then all of a sudden I'm sitting there with Lou throwing up in the back and I'm sitting there filling up with gas and I'm like, Lord, I didn't ask for a sign, but it was pretty close at that point. It was like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? You're trying to tell me that this is a bad idea, that this is not what we're supposed to do? And I didn't ask for a sign because it says in Scripture, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Don't ask for a sign. But I'm sitting there going, Lord, what are we supposed to do? What is the right decision here? What is the right thing? And then like clockwork, this is nuts. A U-Haul truck pulls up next to us in Greenville and plastered across the side of the U-Haul truck, you guessed it, it says Washington, D.C. across the side of the truck. I stop, I look in the car at Autumn, and I go, do you see this? And then she goes, I know, we've got to keep going. You know what she just revealed there? That she had had the exact same thought that I had had. When the finish line gets moved out just a little bit, it is for your good, it is for the good of those around you, and it is for the good of the kingdom of God as well. You will not see completion this side of heaven. Can I say that to you again? You will not see completion this side of heaven. God is working on you. He is fashioning you. He is making you to look like his son every day that you follow him, that you seek him, that you live that life of discipleship. And the Holy Spirit is going to guide you through that process. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. Here's what Paul has to say on that subject. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Underline, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul starts off this passage by saying, grieving the Holy Spirit is when you feel in your gut that the Spirit is calling you to do something. We sang that beautiful song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. That should be the cry of a disciple's heart every single morning. Lord, you are welcome here. Spirit, lead me and direct me. Let me feel through my gut when you want to push me in one direction or another. I'm going to strive to live for you in all things. What Paul writes here is when the spirit begins to kick, when something drastically is about to change in your life, do not get angry at God. Do not get frustrated with the Holy Spirit when he is trying to lead you and guide you to a life of new and good things. Look at what he says next. He says, get rid of all bitterness Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I love the end of this passage because he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, because he is chastening you, he is chiseling you, he is disciplining out of you those secret sins that exist on the inside. 
He says, first of all, look at the sins he lists in verse 31. Bitterness, that rage that bubbles from the inside, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice that the Lord is fashioning in us, compassion and forgiveness, just as, Christ, just as in Christ God forgave us. When you put a puzzle together, there are two finish lines that happen when you build a puzzle. The first finish line when you make the puzzle is when you finish the edges. You ever done the edges on a puzzle? By the way, anybody puzzle people in this room? Raise your hand if you puzzle people. I, just for the record, you're the most patient, kind people in the world. How many of you hate puzzles? Raise your hand. You are impatient and very tough to talk to sometimes, all right? Now listen, I'm one of those who, I see a puzzle that's unfinished, and it stresses me out. You know what I mean? I'm that personality. Stresses me out to see a puzzle that's undone, and I just want to flip the table over and be like, that's it. Nobody needs to worry about this, right? You puzzle people are so patient. Now listen to me. Listen. Finish line number one is when you get the edges in place. But the edges are not the puzzle, the edges are an important piece to the puzzle, but it is not the puzzle. In our lives, edge one is family. Edge two are those relationships that end up being forever relationships. Another edge has to do with your career, and then a big old edge has to do with your faith. Just because you get the edges does not mean that God is done with you, that he's finished blessing you, or he stopped bringing clarity to the rest of your life. Listen to me, don't miss this. He who began a good work in us, he who started that work, will be faithful to carry it on until the day of completion. God's desire in your life is that you would be whole and complete, ready for service in the kingdom of heaven. If you're taking notes, write this down. If the Spirit convicts, allow God to reshape you, even if things are going well. Let me say that again. If the Spirit convicts, allow God to reshape you even if things are going well. The illustration of the person that we have in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 and 32 is this is not a person with outer sin. That outside sin has been cleaned up, at least in this description. But on the inside, there is still sin all over the person, all over each one of us that the Lord is trying to clean up and to discipline out. The edges are in place, but the Lord desires for the center of the puzzle to also be complete. Now, it's really easy to make a trade. You ever go to the lunchroom back when you were a kid and you had some item in your lunch that you did not enjoy eating? And for you, it tasted gross. For me, mom, I'm sorry you're watching the podcast, pimento cheese sandwiches, okay? I did not like when I was a kid pimento cheese sandwiches. Not only that, everybody has something. Peas, I don't like peas for some reason. They're squishy. I just don't like them. Don't like peas. Autumn doesn't like bell peppers. That's one of her things, which was hard in Texas because I love bell peppers, but she doesn't like bell peppers. Think of that item that you don't want that was put in your lunch, and then all of a sudden you go to the barter table, you go to the trade table in the lunchroom, and you have that thing that you do not want at all. Anything you trade that thing for is an upgrade at that point. Anything you trade is an upgrade. But... If you've got something that you sort of like, but there might be something better out there, that is a little bit tougher to let go of and to get rid of. Here's what I've noticed in my walk with God. When it has to do with something that's peas in my life or something that's pimento cheese, I'm real quick to say, God, take it. 
God, take it. I give it to you, all right? And I give it to you. When it comes to salvation, we make the trade of our sin, our indiscretions, our, our awful things that we've done, and we trade that for salvation. That's a pretty stinking easy trade, right? That's a good one. It's easy to make that trade, but it's harder when we have something where we go, it's not great, but it's at least better than nothing. I don't know if I want to trade it. When it comes to our relationship with God, the disciple understands that if God asks for it, that he has something better for us. And not just for us, but something better for everyone around us as well. God gives us good things. He desires good things in and for our lives. And he doesn't just want to bless us. He wants to bless everybody in the process as well. If the Spirit convicts, allow God to reshape you even if things are going well. It begs the question that leads us back into our study in Genesis. What are some areas in your life that God is constantly reshaping? What are some areas in your life that God is constantly reshaping? Areas that do not have a finish line. You can write that down if you want to. What are some areas in life that God is constantly reshaping? Areas that do not have a finish line this side of heaven. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 42, and we're going to start in verse 1. This is right on the heels of our Disney or DreamWorks ending, right? Again, there's famine all throughout the world, but Joseph has been positioned through humility, through all that he's gone through, so that he can be the one to lead them on behalf of Yahweh. Roll credits. Da, da, da. And all of a sudden, we get the stirring for the sequel. Look at what happens in, verse, in chapter 42. It says, when Jacob learned that there was no grain in Egypt. Now stop right there for just a minute. Jacob has not been mentioned since Genesis 37. Jacob is Joseph's father. Remember the one that gives Joseph the coat of many colors. He gives him the coat that symbolizes that he's the favorite. What the brothers have suspected, Joseph gives him the coat and says, ah, you are my favorite. You're the one. I believe God's going to fulfill that vision that he gave to you. You are greatly blessed. Jacob's the one that by doing that causes hatred from his brothers to fall on to Joseph. He's not been mentioned since chapter 37. And then all of a sudden, he's brought back into the story. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us. Look at this, so that we may live and not die. Underline that for just a minute. They are in very dire circumstances. If you have moved to D.C. from somewhere else, or you live here and the bulk of your family has moved away, this passage is going to ring particularly true. Don't miss this. For Joseph, work's going good. For Joseph, he's making big decisions. For Joseph, he's got his own wife and he's got his own two sons at this point. But the problems from his past are still lurking beneath the surface. God's desire is for him to be complete. What God is doing here is not stirring Joseph's family to cause him problems. God is stirring Joseph's family so that all of it can come together in completion, in peace, and in joy because God desires good things not just for Joseph but also for his family as well. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's not in your notes. Your life is not the only one God is reshaping. Let me say that again. 
Your life is not the only one that God is reshaping. There are some of you who struggle with true narcissism, and you need to remember, the world and the power of Almighty God is not just for you. God is desiring that it all is brought to completion, that all sinners would be drawn to repentance. Therefore, what are some areas in your life that God is constantly reshaping? Number one, first and foremost, is your family dynamic. Your family dynamic. This side of heaven, your family dynamic is one that will never remain the same. It's always changing. Do you know why? Because it's a whole bunch of different people who are bound together and in a lot of cases would not have chosen each other. But you are bound together through marriage, through blood, through adoption, through your location in the community. And here's what you got to remember. That family dynamic, once you get a role that you enjoy, it typically runs into a hard and fast patch of change that all of a sudden changes everything. Sometimes it's through death. Someone passes away, it changes the dynamic. Sometimes it's through marriage. It changes the dynamic. Sometimes it's through the addition of a baby. Sometimes it's just through poor decision-making where a family member has to be disciplined for a time. So back in the day, I had a role in my family. Y'all have heard me talk about my dad over and over again. My dad was my absolute hero growing up. And he was the one, he was also the oldest son on his side of the family. And so because of that, a lot of the decision-making ran through my dad and my grandfather. Well, just a few years before my dad passed away, my grandfather passed away. Dad did his funeral. And then at the age of like 54, 55, my dad does my granddad's funeral. But then just a few years after that, dad was only 58. I'm at the age of 33 doing my own father's funeral. I'm the oldest son on that side of the family. And the dynamics were very, very different. I'm trying to serve in that role that I thought was carved out for me from D.C. when everybody else lives in Texas. So it's heavy, but I'm trying to figure it out. And there were days I would look back and be like, can I just be the wayward oldest grandson? I mean, that was a whole lot more fun role to play. Can't I just be the one who falls into a certain category? Can't I be the one that gets to throw out the snarky comments and not the one that has to defend the decisions of the family? That was a whole lot more fun role to play. Not only that, dad's death also changed the dynamic for me and for my mom. My mom, some of you know this, if you've had a parent that's passed away where another parent is still around, um, it's almost like you lose them both. Dad passed away, but he and my mom met when my mom was a ninth grader and my dad was a sophomore in high school. They dated. My mom was my dad's very first girlfriend that he ever had. They were together for more than 40 years. And then all of a sudden when dad passed away, my mom, it's not that she was being false, but my mom had a persona that she had when she was with my dad. And then all of a sudden with him out of the picture for the first time in more than 40 years, she could just be her. I remember I actually went to a counselor and I said, it's just different with my mother. I just don't understand why things are going this way. She's, it's like she's a different person. And the counselor said this to me. She said, you need to know something. She said, we call this regression. She said, anytime you have a spouse that passes away after they've spent that much time together, 
She said, typically, their brain will revert back for a time to the very first or to the time before they knew that person. It's the last time that my mom was single. It's the last time my mom, it was just her making decisions that affected just her. And I said, so you're telling me my mom is a 14-year-old girl right now? (laughs) And she looked at me and she goes, I am so, so sorry. It was great. (laughs) Now listen, it didn't stay that way. Things changed. But at the time, I felt like bristling and going, what happened to my mom? What happened to this person that I knew? What happened to that family dynamic that I fit into? And all of a sudden, it caused me to bristle where the truth is God was fashioning something beautiful. My mom had always worked as the ministry sidekick, and now my mom gets to serve on staff as the missions pastor at a church in Central Texas. She has come into her own in amazing fashion. And mom, I'm so, so proud of you in the way that God has crafted you. You don't have to hear that from me, but I'm so, so proud of you in the way that God has crafted you. I tell you that story just to say this. Change happens. Difficulty takes place. But God's goal is for your good, for the good of those around you, and also for the good of the kingdom. At the same time, we just have to trust him. Some of you would say, well, pastor, that's your story. It's also the foundation of a thousand movies that have come out as well. Have you ever seen the movie Frozen 2? All right. Some of y'all go see Frozen 2? The whole premise of Frozen 2 is based off, some of y'all can tell what I have to watch now with my kids. All right. Some of you there. The first song in Frozen 2, by the way, the highest grossing animated film of all time now. uh, First song in Frozen 2 is called Some Things Never Change. And the character Anna sings the song, some things never change. And then she says, and I'm holding on tight to you. She's singing to her sister. She's singing to Kristoff. She's singing to the kingdom. She's singing to that role in life that she has. Some things never change. And I'm holding on tight to you. Please don't change. Please don't go anywhere. Please don't shake up this flow that I have in this life. And then guess what the whole movie's about? How everything changes. How it doesn't stay the same. It can't. It can't stay the same. Things have to change. Things have to shift. Things do happen. Some of you would say, well, I'm not about Frozen 2. There was also a great movie back in the day at the peak of the, uh, at the golden age of romantic comedies called Sweet Home Alabama. Do you remember Sweet Home Alabama? Okay, Reese Witherspoon, Josh Lucas, and then, um, oh, the doctor from Grey's Anatomy. What's his name? Patrick, that was a really quick answer there, Morrison. Really quick answer. Danny, I'm sorry, dude. All right. Really quick answer there. All that to say, Patrick Dempsey. There you go. You remember the whole story? It's the picture of this life period with Joseph. You got, you got Reese Witherspoon, high-powered fashion designer in New York, crafting this new life, socialite, about to marry Patrick Dempsey, the heartthrob of the whole city, right? And then what happens? She's got this past and struggle with family. She's married to someone in Alabama, Josh Lucas, a up-and-coming glass entrepreneur, all right? (laughs) Josh Lucas. Some of you watched the movie. You get it. You got Josh Lucas. She's married to him. They got married right out of high school. We're married for a year, and then she took off, created this new life. But for her to move forward, she's got to be whole. She's got the edges, but the Lord desires to fill in the middle. Now listen, there's a thousand movies that could fill that same category. Do you know why? Because it's a very common story. Your family dynamic, some of you get so stinking mad at God. Shake your fist at him. How dare you take this person from me? How dare you take this role from me? How dare you change this dynamic? How dare you shake up this flow that I had? And the truth of the matter is, it was always going to change. 
this side of heaven, it's the way it works. And then sometimes it changes for the better. If you're taking notes, write this down. God has placed you as a messenger of hope and peace to the people you did not have a choice but to be associated with. God has placed you as a messenger of hope and peace to the people you did not have a choice but to be associated with. Sometimes it seems like such a burden. I'm old enough now. There are certain people that I am certain I would have written off if the Lord had not given us a blood connection, if the Lord had not given us a legal connection, if the Lord had not given us a reason to stay in contact. And I am so glad I stuck around for the journey. My brother, Sam and I grew up, um, I have one brother, and Sam is four years younger than me. If you have a little brother or a little sister, four years is like the magic distance when you're growing up where he was just too young to spend time with me and my friends until we got a little bit older. He was just too young, and so I tried to ditch him and dodge him way too often. I'm ashamed of that, but I tried to ditch him and dodge him too often. So Sam, back in the day, we also shared a room. So we were together constantly fighting over the old 8-bit Nintendo, which was awesome. And then he got the Nintendo 64, and then that gave him the upper hand because then he had the better system and I had to beg him to play. Sam and I struggled early. I told you guys the story. I moved off to college, dated someone for three and a half years, and then we got engaged. We broke off the engagement, and I was in pieces Sam was so kind to me through that stretch. He was 18 at that point. Sam wrote letters to me. In fact, one of the letters was so powerful. I remember him writing, don't be a victim. Don't be a victim. And he wrote this just amazing uh, letter with scripture in it. And I kept it in my wallet for 10 years until finally it started to fall apart. Now I've got it in a box in my house. The relationship changed. He wasn't kid brother anymore. He was partner. It culminated when he and I got to serve on staff together at First Baptist Church in Grapevine. I was the youth minister, and my brother was my worship leader at the church. We got to lead in worship together every single week. After that, Sam went through a period of darkness. He fell away from the Lord, and he was estranged from our family. He and I didn't speak for almost five years. And then he and my dad were estranged for about eight we went through this period of incredible darkness. The dynamic had changed to where we almost felt like we couldn't even mention him at holidays because it was so hard and so sad to think of him not being there. I can tell you at that point, I didn't believe. I, I trusted that the Lord was doing something, but I didn't know how it was going to come back together. And then God works all things together for good. My dad gets cancer. It was the catalyst for my brother to reconnect with the family we thought maybe it was just for the end. Instead, the Lord got a hold of his heart. And two and a half years ago, I was preaching at First Baptist Church in Lubbock, Texas. I'm kneeling at the altar at the end of the service, and my phone buzzes in my pocket. I walk outside. It was my brother. I said, Sam, I was praying for you. So are you okay? He said, I needed to call you and apologize. I'm sorry we let this stuff get between us. You know what's nuts? He's now met all my kids. We're dear, dear friends. In fact, I was writing this portion of the sermon this morning. I wanted to craft how I was going to say it. And just like clockwork, he texted, I'm praying for you this morning, in the middle of me writing it down. It was just nuts. Again, the way that God works, the way that it comes together, just beautiful, the way that it happens. Reconciliation, 
God desires for you to be whole. He desires for you to be complete. And that finish line, that finish line is the day you take your last breath. He is fashioning you. He is chiseling you. He is creating in you right up until the moment you go to see him. It begs the question, is there someone that you are related to that you should check on? Is there someone that you are related to that you should check on? Let's read our last verses and we'll close today. Look at Genesis 42, now verses 3 through 5. And for those of you who've been around for this whole study, these verses make me mad. Let's read them real quick. You ready? Okay, it says, Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Look at this. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land, the famine in the land of Canaan was also severe. Stop right there for just a minute. Can I tell you why this makes me so mad? Why does Joseph get sold into slavery by his brothers? Because his dad loved Joseph more than he did the other brothers. And what drives me nuts about this part of the passage is the same junk that's causing strife in the family 20 years before is the same junk that the father is still doing at this point. When you read this, again, it just fills me with rage and frustration. I need to read Ephesians 4 and deal with that rage, all right? But it's so frustrating because you sit there and you go, ah, he's causing problems. He's stirring the pot. Yet again, if you're taking notes, what is God? What are areas of your life that God is constantly reshaping? Number one is your family dynamic. And number two is your prejudice. Your prejudice. It is listed here in Genesis 42 because God is not just working on Joseph. God is not just working on the brothers, but he is working on Jacob as well. The same junk that he's doing from earlier on, 20 years before, is the same junk that he's tied up and doing now, and God is still working on him in that level of humility. When you interact with people, we need to know prejudice is not something that you are just done with one day. Prejudice is a, is a fight that you have to battle daily. Prejudice, by the way, is not just limited to one thing. Prejudice comes out with race, with politics, with economics, with age, with language. And then sometimes it's just simple geography. I mean, it's the same reason that high schools have rivalries or, or college teams have rivalries or cities have rivalries and sporting events. We have this prejudice. Prejudice is such a dirty word in our common culture. The word that's used to describe it that really hits home is what James calls favoritism. Favoritism is just a shinier way of saying prejudice. Flip with me, if you will. Last set of verses today, James chapter 2, and let's look at verses 1 through 4. Anytime he says favoritism here, I want you to picture prejudice. This idea that you favor someone over someone else. Look at what James says. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. James says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a heck of an intro. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't be prejudiced. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or look at this, you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Stop right there for just a minute. 
God is constantly reshaping our prejudices as well. You will never come to a point when you cross that finish line. It's ingrained in us on the inside that we favor some people and we put down others. To look like Jesus, we've got to allow him to chisel away, to cut out that cancer on our spirit so that we can be the most clear reflection of Jesus Christ that we could possibly be. You've got to let him shape you and cut off those tumors so that they don't end up destroying you. If you're taking notes, write this down. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Any other view distorts the truth of Jesus. Let me say that again. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Any other view distorts the truth of Jesus. The picture that we get is of a church meeting. James says, we've got this church meeting, and you're the greeter at the door. And the greeter at the door says, whoa, this person looks like they could get us ahead. This person looks like they could help us. Come, have the good seat, right? Everybody in your house has the good chair. That's the picture. Who gets to sit in the good chair? Oh, you look like you're somebody of great stature. Come and sit in the good chair. And then he says, and for others, you go, ooh, you look like somebody who it'll be good to have you in the room, but we really don't want to hear from you. If you could stand up against the wall, and then there are certain people in your life you look at and you go, you know what? You're just lucky to be in the room. Uh, if you want to stick around, it can be by my stinky feet. Now, listen. This is not just a church example. Thank you, sir. This is not just a church example. On the inside, you do this with just about every person that you meet. You decide, are they chair worthy, are they wall worthy, or are they floor worthy? When we do that, the goal of Almighty God is that our interactions would be so Christ-centered that our attitude would be that we could be the hands and feet of Christ to everyone brought in front of us because we see the world the way God sees us. How does God see us? It comes straight from Matthew 9, 36. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't say, when he saw the crowds, he saw that some were worthy to sit in the chair, some were worthy to stand against the wall, and many were worthy to lay on, his, on the floor by his stinky feet. And yet we do that, think of the way you do business. We do that, think of the way that you do community. We do that, think of the way that you treat people in your family who've made mistakes. Now listen, your prejudice... There is not a line that one day you're going to cross and be like, oh, all of a sudden I'm not a bigot anymore. All of a sudden I'm not prejudiced anymore. All of a sudden I treat everyone the same. It's a finish line that you never cross this side of heaven, but you work on it and you let the Lord chisel away and work on it in your life every single day. And then before you know it, when people see you, they see Jesus. It begs the final question. You ready for this? We are, uh, here's the final question. Are there people in your life that only find a place at your feet? Are there people in your life that only find a place at your feet? That attitude comes about when we see ourselves as different than we really are. Jesus says it in this final story, and I'll close. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of two men coming to the church to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And Jesus says, as they walk down the aisle together, the Pharisee comes up and prays this prayer in his heart. Oh, Lord, thank you so much that I am not like these other people. 
Thank you so much that I don't make the mistakes that these other people make. Lord, I thank you that I give a tenth of my money, that I serve here at the church, that I teach in the fellowship. Woo! Lord, thank you for making me, me. Jesus said that man's prayer was not heard. But the, fair, but the tax collector comes down front and Jesus says he could not even lift his eyes to heaven because of the shame of his sin. And he beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, that's the attitude. That the shed blood of Jesus Christ isn't just for you, it's for everybody. That you are not just made special, but that he has a relationship, desires to have a relationship with each and every one of us. That attitude of treating one better than another is favoritism, it's prejudice, it's wickedness. And it is not who God made us to be. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection. There's nothing mystical or magical about this time. But there is something powerful about considering the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me. Is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? My family dynamic is changing, and it's frustrating. My family dynamic is changing. I liked the role I was in before. Would you pray for me that I would trust the Lord as things change? If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer is very simple. Just pray this prayer. God, help me to trust you and believe that things will be good. God, help me to trust you and to believe that things will be good. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? If I'm really being honest, there is some prejudice in my heart that needs to be cut out. Now listen to me. I know how heavy that word is in our culture here. And so I'm going to ask you today not to lift your hand with nobody looking around but just me, I'm going to ask you to be honest in your heart of hearts. You do not have to physically lift your hand, but in your heart, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, I need you to pray for me. There are some people that I struggle with, a hatred I have in my heart for them based off of things I have prejudged or predetermined, and I need you to cut out that cancer. I need you to lance off that boil because it seeks to destroy me. With nobody looking around, if that's you, just in your heart, raise your hand and acknowledge that before the Lord today. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. But your prayer between you and God is very simple. God, cut out the boil. God, lance the cancer. And Lord, help me to look more like Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings, and thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for those who are here today going through a change in their family dynamic. I pray that they would see it as not something where you are stealing from them or taking from them, but God, you are reshaping things because there are so many external factors. No family can stay exactly the same forever. Change has to take place. 
I pray that we would trust you today, that the changes that come, the reshaping that happens are directly from you and they are for our good, for our family's good, and for the good of the kingdom of God. And Lord, for those who are here today struggling with prejudice, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would lance the boil, that you would cut out the cancer, and Lord, that they would be able to move forward as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to the world, seeing it with compassion. Thank you, God, for who you are. Speak in power in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen.